0: Good evening and welcome to Navarro Live. I'm Aaron Bastani, your host, uh, pretty regularly has to be said on this day of the week. And this evening I'm joined by Maurice McLeod. Maurice, how are you? I'm well, Aaron. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I've had a rather surprising Tuesday, which I'll uh, go on to detail, but I I could be worse. Uh, Before we go on to our first story, I just want to touch quickly on something that happened today. On my way into the studio earlier while walking to my local train station, I was assaulted by a man who I'd never met before, but who knew my name. He punched me from behind after passing by and used rather unsavoury language about me. Fortunately, I was able to pacify him and was helped by a passing member of the public after a few minutes. The police were called and an arrest was made. Multiple independent witnesses saw what happened. Now, in a way, I should count myself lucky that this took place in broad daylight and that there are witnesses who can corroborate what happened. But this was a completely unprovoked attack near my home, and my suspicion is this was a politically motivated assault on a journalist. This cannot be allowed to become normal, but in any case, I'm here to present tonight's show because I and my colleagues here at Navarro Media refuse to be intimidated by bullies and thugs merely for having political opinions. So, let's get to it. On tonight's show, this is what's coming up. Farage goes large, getting a surprise from the BBC. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak sends arguably his most toxic tweet yet, and the latest revelations concerning a certain GB News host. Stay tuned for all of that. Here's today's first story. The Prime Minister of the United Kingdom tweeted this today. This is what we're up against. The Labour Party, a subset of lawyers, criminal gangs. They're all on the same side, propping up a system of exploitation that profits from getting people to the UK illegally. I have a plan to stop it. Here's how. That's right. It's our country's leader, our Prime Minister, trying to link the official opposition to criminal gangs. It's giving Orban energy. That post was linked to this story in the Daily Mail. Exclusive. Lawyers charging £10,000 to make fake asylum claims. Special investigation exposes staff at immigration law firms, briefing clients on how to lie to the authorities to win the right to stay in Britain. That story is about a handful of solicitors who are alleged to have coached an undercover reporter posing as an asylum seeker with no valid asylum claim on how to gain asylum in the UK. One accusation involves a legal advisor asking for £10,000 to invent a horrific backstory for the claimant. Another, allegedly offered to falsely, say that the claimant had been the victim of human trafficking. When one firm was approached by the mail about one of its solicitors, it sacked him and closed an office, saying, quote, his actions breached the law and broke the solicitor's regulation authority's code of conduct. That seems like the right response if these allegations are true. If these solicitors have been gaming the system, they should be sanctioned and punished. But for Sunak to say this shows that Labour is in cahoots with criminal gangs is pretty remarkable and says how low the government is willing to go. There's been some response from Labour to Sunak's tweet. Responding to a tweet from RBC host Ian Dale that was critical of the Prime Minister, Labour's Jim McMahon said this, when all else is lost, the only place you have is the gutter. Poor yes. Desperate and pathetic from Sunak, too. Maurice, what's your take on this story? Look, stories like this are a dime a dozen in the mail. It should be said. Uh, and we're not really commenting on the accuracy of the story and the, the, the credibility of the, the allegations, although they seem quite strong. This is an important story. But park that. What's of real public interest here is that the government, given that it's polling 20, 25 points repeatedly behind the Labour Party, are sinking to new depths.
1: For a lot of these people in politics, I kind of feel like it's they see as a sort of game of rugby. It's just a posh sort of thing that they do, and it doesn't really they can say and do things. It doesn't really impact on them. They sort of paint this binary uh world where you're either fighting for Britain and standing up for, for, for whatever, or you're on the other side, and the other side is the migrants and the you know these these dodgy lawyers who absolutely should be um should be you know they're exploiting people and they absolutely should be um uh, sanctioned if that's what they're doing um and and the labor party a political party this is this is the sort of uh, binary nonsense that ends up with sadly what happened to you today you end up with a, um a, a society where the other side are are literally the enemies and they're all on they're all over there and they're all against you um i i think it's really serious it's not just a bit of you know, political point scoring or haha, or I can maybe link Labour to, you know, to these groups. I, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a mistake that the, I don't think it's a surprise to be honest, that the male are focusing on, on this story either, because it's like, it, it, it ticks all of their boxes. You've got, you've got, you've got criminality, you've got, you know, someone earning loads of money, sneaking people into the country who shouldn't be here. It, it sort of ticks all of the Mail's boxes as well. So um, as you say, the important part is that the prime minister of this country is trying to associate the opposition of this country with criminal gangs and 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 people that he wants uh, to be hated. I think it's really dangerous. I, grew, I, you know, as a black person growing up in the seventies and eighties, I know what it's like to feel fear of random attacks on the streets and, and what happens to you in that personalized way, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm glad you're okay, but it's it's really worrying and I think soon explain a really dangerous game.
0: Do you think it's getting worse? Because we've had these stories for a long time and it, it felt to me like there was a crescendo of just misinformation and slander really in the 2019 general election. But my suspicion is, as the Tories struggle going into the next election, and I, I personally think they won't do as badly as the present poll suggests, but it, it looks like Labour will win a majority of some kind, um, that, you know, they, they play the Linton-Crosby playbook and, you know, fundamentally what they do is they're, they're pissing in the swimming pool and making, making it, you know, unusable for the rest of us, which is to say that they're, they're, they're destroying the basis for any sort of common public conversation and, and consensus around political issues. Do, do you think we could see that being worse ahead of the next general election in 2023, 2024, than it was in 2019, even though Keir Starmer is clearly not as left but not as left as, um, as Jeremy Corbyn, it seems quite plausible that the, the political rhetoric could be just as bad.
1: Oh, I think the, the rhetoric will be, um, uh, will be bad. I don't, if, I don't know if it'll be as bad. I'm, so I'm thinking it'll be bad because these people still want power. They still want to cling on to power. And if there's any way that they can, you know, um, get a few extra percentage points and save a few more MPs and have a bit more power, that, you know, that's worth it. And they'll, they'll do or say whatever they need to say. I, I'm not I, I guess when when I the bit I hesitate on those that I'm not sure whether the um the, the sort of monopoly or the the, the tsunami of, of press that was supporting every single story uh in two thousand and nineteen, I'm not sure if that will quite be the case. I'm not sure if the fear of 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 Labour will be as great next time round. So so yes, I'm, I'm sure that the, the, the Tories will put out whatever stories they need to, to try and uh, uh, um, trigger their base or, or whatever. But I, I'm not sure that it will get the, the blanket support that it did last time through the media.
0: Yeah, I think there's link to that. And I, I suppose a big part of Starmer's strategy on this stuff is that it won't happen. And I mean, it's interesting. It's interesting in a very bad way, but it's, it's an experiment fundamentally, isn't it? We want, to, we want to find out just how right-wing the Conservatives are, how much they're willing to lean into conspiracy theories, frankly. Next story. Right now, various parts of Southern Europe are on fire. Tourists have been fleeing roads as wildfires spread across the Greek island. In the Canary Islands, places in La Palma have forced the evacuation of 4,000 people. And In Italy, wildfires have approached the city of Palermo, forcing the closure of the airport there. Highest temperature records have also been smashed across the Northern Hemisphere this month. Scientists from the World Weather Attribution Project have said today that the heatwaves would have been, quote, virtually impossible if not for human-driven climate change. Yet the Tory government seems to be making climate policy on the hoof, even more than usual, driven, as ever, by short-term self-interest. That's after some in the party have read the Uxbridge by-election result last week, where the Tories narrowly retained the seat, as showing the public aren't really interested in net-zero policies. This was Rishi Sunak on ITV. Is your government still fully committed
2: to ending the sale of petrol and diesel cars by 2030, and that net-zero pledge, that central pledge of, of, of reaching that by 2050? Yeah, of of course, net zero is important to me. And that's why after I became prime minister earlier this year, I set up a brand new government department for energy security and net zero. So yes, we're gonna keep making progress towards our net zero ambitions. And we're also gonna strengthen our energy security. I think the events of the last year or two have demonstrated the importance of investing more in homegrown energy, whether that's more nuclear or offshore wind. I think that's what people want to see. And that's what I'm going to deliver. I'm standing up for the British people because I'm also cognizant that we're living through a time at the moment where inflation is high. That's having an impact on household and families' bills. And I don't want to do anything to add to that. I want to make it easier. So yes, we're going to make progress towards net zero, but we're going to do that in a proportionate and pragmatic way that doesn't unnecessarily give people more hassle and more costs in their life. That's what I'm not interested in, prepared to do, but we are making progress towards net zero. And our track record on this is better than the vast majority of other countries that we're compared to. So people. Should should be proud of that, but also should be reassured that what I'm not going to do is unnecessarily add cost to their family's bills.
0: And that was all pretty vague with a little more detail. Today, the Daily Mail ran a story with this headline. Could Rishi reverse the controversial ban on petrol cars? Prime Minister is poised to order a review of net zero plan to stop sale of new petrol and diesel cars in 2030 sources. claim. The Mail goes on to report a government source as saying this about Sunak's attitude to the vehicle ban. It is fair to say he would be open to reviewing it. There is no review at the moment, but he wants to make sure we're always taking a proportionate and pragmatic approach, particularly as we are way ahead of a lot of other countries on this green stuff. That sounds very promising and informed, doesn't it? Including vehicles. The 2030 ban was introduced under Boris Johnson in 2020, they said it would put Britain, quote, on course to be the fastest G7 country to decarbonize cars and vans. But some backbench Tories have opposed the ban. Craig McKinley, who chairs the Net Zero Scrutiny Group, told the Express this, Putting aside the lack of electricity supply and rollout of charging network, the domination of China in the supply chain for the rare metals required for batteries should cause further concern. Uniquely, uh, the UK stands alone with the 2030 date, the EU and US has kicked the date down the road to 2035, with Germany pushing for a perpetual exemption for synthetic fuel powered traditional engines, we are likely to see our successful car industry decimated and oil refining capacity relocating abroad. The Uxbridge by-election shows anti-car policies are rejected by the public. Conservatives should never ban things. That's an interesting claim. We're a party of freedom and choice. The government would be well advised to scrap the ban. Conservatives, we should never ban things. Think about what that means for a moment. We We shouldn't ban pedophilia. Really? We shouldn't ban murder. We shouldn't prohibit theft. I mean, we prohibit lots of things in society because they're ethically bad or because they have very, very negative consequences. Just a stupid, stupid point from an underwhelming political party at this point. But a quick point also about that 2030 claim about how Britain was unique. You know, we're doing so much more than anybody else. Quick reminder, the Norwegian parliament adopted a national goal that all new cars sold by 2025 should be zero emission. Right now, 84% of all new vehicles sold in Norway are electric. That's in 2023, not not 2030. So it's not that outlandish to say we could achieve this in seven years' time. Responding for the government on Times Radio this morning was levelling up Minister Michael Gove. I think we need thoughtful environmentalism. Uh, I think that it's absolutely vital
3: that we take steps in order to move towards net zero. It's absolutely vital that we uh, have a strategy for nature recovery um, and a strategy for uh, electrification of the grid and a strategy for decarbonisation overall. But there are some, uh, the Just Stop Oil group, for example, uh, who instead of engaging in a thoughtful debate about how we get to net zero and how we enhance nature, uh, uh, see the world in Uh, in Manichean terms, and they uh, denounce any notion of, for example, using oil and gas as part of our transition. Um, And I think that is a mistake. I think it's a mistake for two reasons. One, we win the environmental debate by sticking to the science. Not by uh, uh, creating this sort of religious divide between uh, the the saved and the damned, the mm. good and the bad. Well, um, and 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 the, and the <laughs> second thing is, we also will need our own domestic oil and gas okay. as part of the transition.
4: Uh, but you, you, the Tory government, conservative government, seem to be backing away from it under the protection of it's too expensive. Where we know that polling done very recently for YouGov mm. says that the government, current government, are not doing enough. On well, the environment,
3: I, uh, I do agree that it's important that uh, the government does press ahead with appropriate and thoughtful steps in okay. order to safeguard the environment. So, but there mm-hmm. are, you know, there are some specific areas where um, the the cost mm. that is being imposed on individuals risks creating a backlash. We've seen okay. that happen in the Netherlands, mm. and we don't want to get to a situation where the the, the support you quite rightly point out mm. for improving our environment uh, curdles and turns into resistance.
4: Okay, uh, what about the sale, uh, the banning the sale of new petrol and diesel cars from 2030? Is that immovable? Yes. It is immovable? Yes. Okay, well, thank goodness for that.
0: Gove also appeared on Sky News, where he was asked about the European heatwaves.
4: Scientists are saying there are links between the climate crisis, what we are seeing in Greece, um, the island that you're going to, and others, um, and the heatwave at the moment. Have we had enough of these experts? No. So um, why are we why are we not concerned about what's going on on Greece? Then
3: oh, we are. Um, I think again, we we've seen um, in uh, uh, the course of the last month three of the uh, hottest days that the planet has had in uh, recorded history. So naturally making sure that we take appropriate steps uh, to mitigate the impact of climate change is absolutely central. And the UK government has shown leadership in this area. Uh, A thoughtful environmental approach is one that characterizes the way in which we as a government have responded to this.
4: You guys are having a wobble because of what happened in Oxbridge and a few hundred votes in relation to ULES.
3: No, I think it's important to, to draw distinctions here. So, uh, the ULES expansion that uh, the Labour Mayor Sadiq Khan uh, has contemplated is about asking hardworking people to pay a significant amount more during a cost of living crisis. Um, My view is that the way in which you build support for the environmental change that we need is not by penalizing people in this way, it's by showing leadership across the board. And that means everything from investing in nature recovery to making sure that the progress that we're making towards electric vehicles um, and making sure that the progress we're making more broadly on decarbonization is, properly directed, but it is also the case that a thoughtful environmental approach involves taking account of other economic factors as well.
0: Don't penalise people. I agree, by the way, don't penalise people. We shouldn't be penalising working class people as part of an approach to net zero. I agree, Michael. So what does that look like? It means subsidising retrofitting houses to make them more energy efficient. It means building a national network of quick charges for electric vehicles. It means subsidising electric vehicles. Heaven forbid, it means building cycling infrastructure that actually gets people from A to B without fear of being knocked over. That, that, that isn't penalising anybody, but it, what it requires is doing stuff. And the Tories hate doing stuff and building stuff more than they hate penalising people, because penalising people in their little world doesn't cost anything. Doing stuff costs things. So what we get is penalising people. So they say we don't like to penalise people, we don't, like, we don't like to prohibit things, we don't like to stop things. Well, your, your recent legislation in regards to protest might dis, you know, might disagree with that, might dispute that you don't like to stop things. So your approach to just the poor, you don't like to stop things or prohibit things. You, you do. Maurice, the Tories were actually uh, quite ambitious on climate change under Boris Johnson. It wasn't something which was frequently, frequently said because, of course, at the time the alternative was Jeremy Corbyn. But there were pretty ambitious objectives by global standards, certainly compared to the US or Canada or Australia, when it came to reducing emissions. More recently, though, the rhetoric means they kind of sound like they might end up in a similar place to where the US Republican Party's at. What's your read there? Or am I just being overly pessimistic?
1: When Boris Johnson was around, he had to um, um, make noise about the environment because Corbyn was there, because there was, you know, we were talking about the Green New Deal and all sorts of things like that. He had to sound as if he was going to do um, do something on this area that the public want. You know, eighty four percent of whatever of the public is worried about climate change. So, you know, Johnson and the thing he was good at is saying what people wanted to hear, and what they wanted to hear was was good talk on 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 climate. Now the Tories are always in this in this bind over this stuff because they're 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 raison d'etre, they're funders. The reason they that they are there is to support. Business and business needs short term. Don't get in our way. Let us let us burn and do what we want. And, and you know, climate restrictions are the opposite of they, what they want. So they've got to sort of sound very. Um, they've got to you know they've got to talk about their determination to do something while doing as little as possible. It's 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 this sort of place they find themselves in, and it's, it's a massive opportunity to be honest for for Labour. It's a massive opportunity to go. Well, we're we're the party that really will take this seriously, and we are, you know, we'll really push ahead, and we'll, uh, um, you know, we'll lead the, the the vanguard on this sort of uh, um, most important issue facing the world. You know, we've, uh, we've been able to pretend for ages that that sort of climate, the climate emergency, was somewhere else. It was happening in the global south, and and now it's in Europe and America, and and it's affecting people's lives and holidays. Um, it's it's, it's a massive opportunity, I think, for Labour to, 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 to be in a better place than maybe they are at the moment.
0: What's your read on where the Tories are at? So I think what it seems to me is, by the way, I personally think the Tories will, will ditch the 2030 pledge. I think it's inevitable because then, you know, there, there are many, many councils. There's been great research on this. They're not building a single charging point for any electric vehicles. Anybody watching or listening to this will know how, infrequent you, how infrequently you'll find these places. Um, some parts of the country, very good. Other parts of the country, just complete deserts for it. What's your view, Maurice? Do you think they will ditch it? Because, of course, Gove is saying they won't. Sunak seems to be having a wobble. Ultimately, Sunak's the prime minister. Um, the mood music would seem to indicate they will. And it's also a great, it's a great wedge issue, isn't it, in the next general election? You know, even though this is presently a Tory policy and it was introduced by Boris Johnson. These people will ban your car by 2030. And we won't it's puerile it's stupid so I'm presuming the Tories will adopt it
1: absolutely it's um, I mean for, for cars in some parts of the UK read you know guns in the US it's one of those things it, it, any any suspicion that any sort of restriction might come in or that the other side are going to do anything to stop you being able to drive your your car feels very personal and its and it's kind of a it's easy for the Tories to sort of rile up. What's left of their base? Um, so, so yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure they'll ditch it, and I'm sure they'll ditch it and point to, uh, you know, this is why you've got maybe the Labour leader talking about, you know, hating tree huggers. It's it's uh, this is going to be one of the battle rounds, I'm sure.
0: It should be said that uh, Keir Starmer, I do, I do mock Keir Starmer for owning an SUV, which he does, but I should add, it is a hybrid, so he's not doing too badly, despite, uh, despite, you know running over a cyclist uh, in recent memory. Kyrgyzstan was on a slightly better trajectory in this stuff than a few Tories. And I, I personally think, just to round this story off, that the Tories will ditch this, and I think they will go very right, very quickly on climate change, um, because it's, it's what they have to do. They've got to cement their base, um, and it's not going to necessarily win your majority. It's not going to be effective policy for the challenges of the 21st century. And my God... This week really brought home how quickly uh, climate systems are breaking down globally, but it could help them stop a Labour majority. I don't think that's likely, but I think it's possible. And can I just say, by the way, I doubt Michael Walker is watching this. He's having a very well-deserved day off. off. But if you want to know a little bit more about how bad the situation is right now, watch yesterday's show, the first 10 minutes, written by Stephen, who's in the studio here, presented by Michael and, of course, produced by Fox and Alex, was a masterclass of environmental reportage. Can't recommend it enough. If only the Tory party would watch it and maybe pay attention, things might be a little better. Next story. Once upon a time, Britain was known for its railways. The first ever intercity line was built here in Britain in 1830. It connected Liverpool and Manchester. You could say we were world-leading, that favourite buzzword of our political class. However, more recently, Britain has fallen behind. The country has less high-speed track than Germany, France, Spain, and Italy. And as of March 2020, just 38% of the country's rail network was electrified. For context, in the EU, that figure is 56%. For China, it's 66%. And for Japan, it's 75%. So whether you support private or public ownership of rail, I definitely support public ownership, it's inarguable that we are laggards when it comes to a modern rail network. It's simply indisputable. So imagine my shock when I read yesterday how the British taxpayer was going to help finance a new high-speed electric railway in Turkey. Here's the government's press release. UK Export Finance, UKEF, UK Government's Export Credit Agency, has underwritten €781 million of financing, equivalent to €680 in loans, to support construction of a 286-kilometre high-speed electric railway in southern Turkey. With financing provided through UKEF's biocredit facility, Ronan Sands Holding will finish construction of the Mersin Adana Gaziantep high-speed railway on behalf of the Turkish Ministry of Transport. The deal is expected to create new and multi million pound export contract opportunities for the UK's infrastructure, engineering, and project management sectors, supporting the Prime Minister's priority of growing the UK economy. This signals key future opportunities for UK exporters, with Renaissance holding one of Europe's 10 largest construction companies, intending to use the high speed rail project to build its wider relationships with the UK supply chain. So, to be clear, and I've seen a fair bit of this on Twitter. The taxpayer isn't paying to build a high-speed railway in Turkey. This is not some act of charity by the government. Uh, It's important to say we could do with a few more high-speed rail lines in this country. Rather, we're offering security on the finance for its construction. The loans are being provided by JP Morgan, ING Bank, and BNP Paribas. This is being done, as already mentioned, through UK Export Finance, UKEF. So what is that? Well, UKEF is the name of the Export Credits Guarantee Department, ECGD, which is the UK's export credit agency and a ministerial department. ECGD recently celebrated its 100th anniversary, so it's not some newfangled invention, and is the longest-running export credit agency in the world. Globally, its commitments today stand at around £50 billion. That's its exposure. ECGD's aim is to benefit the UK economy by helping exporters of UK goods and services to win business and UK firms to invest overseas by providing guarantees, insurance, and reinsurance against loss. So basically, this is something which is offering a bunch of assurances, financial products to help British exporters sell their goods and services abroad. ECGD is required by the government to operate slightly better than break even. So there is profit involved, but it's marginal. It's just to help it keep ticking over. And the real point is to enable, like I say, British export firms to win business, but also to help Britain win political favour in a specific country or with a certain government. No coincidence, I think this has happened in Turkey, given what's going on with potential Swedish and Finnish accession to NATO, which is, of course, something which Istanbul has major misgivings about. Now, you might think UK export finance, UKEF, isn't such a bad idea. Uh, on the face of it, I certainly don't. Something we could definitely roll out to developing countries. But here's the thing why don't we have a similar institution to finance projects like this here in the UK? This isn't an academic question, by the way. In the 2019 general election, Labour argued for a national investment bank alongside regional ones, that would finance large infrastructure projects, but also small and medium-sized enterprises who struggle to access credit elsewhere. But of course, that was stupid spendthrift socialism. That was McDonnell being an idiot, Corbyn being clueless as ever. A sensible establishment economics means financing it for Turkey instead. And while the Tories did set up a national infrastructure bank last year, partly pinching McDonald's idea, they don't seem to be doing very much with it. And it certainly isn't helping to finance brand new high-speed rail connections. A really remarkable, ridiculous story, frankly. Maurice, Britain is guaranteeing loans for high-speed rail in Turkey, and yet domestically services go from bad to worse. How do you explain it?
1: Yeah, if you if you ever needed proof that that the government's sort of aversion to you know developing our infrastructure was ideological, that this is it instead of you know instead of sort of putting money into yeah. the stuff we desperately need, you know the the um and, and 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 let's be honest, the reason the reason they don't want to uh, you know to the government to be running this stuff isn't is isn't just that they want small governments; it, it's that. If the government's doing it, then it, it closes off access to, you know, the private money and you know their their funders again. Basically, it closes off options to make money from the British from the UK economy. That's that's why they don't want it to happen in the UK. But yeah, they know it's a great idea. So of course, let's invest in Turkey. And as you say, I've got I'm I'm all for us uh, um, investing in other places around the world. That's that's a great idea. Let's let's use some of this wealth that we have sloshing around to. To do some good, but but yeah, let's let's start here as well. We 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 desperately need it, don't we?
2: I love that
0: point you just made there, Maurice, which is about how ideological it is. Because I I think that's right. The Conservatives don't want successful mass adoption of public transport, just like they don't want effective social housing being rolled out, which is cheap and addresses the housing crisis. Why? Two reasons: because it doesn't help them politically; it doesn't help their base. It actually shrinks their base. Uh, And then secondly, it doesn't really make anybody any money. You know, George Osborne said precisely this in regards to social housing. We won't build it because they're not our people. In the early 2010s, and like you say, it's it's just pure ideology. And then there's an additional element to this, which is the interface between private capital, private business, and um, government. And, you know, Lenin had this quote about you know government being effectively the central committee of the bourgeoisie or whatever. He had a great line about this at the top of the twenty uh, at the top of the 20th century, and and this is. This is broadly what's happening, right? The government uses taxpayer money to um, guarantee loans for their mates in big business. They'll do that, but they're not willing to offer social finance to build um, train stations in places of high deprivation, right? I live, in, I live in Portsmouth. I live near Fratton. Go on Google and Google Fratton train station, okay? Because it, it, it doesn't look good uh, I'm from Bournemouth. The nearest train station um, to uh, the Bournemouth Stadium is in Boscombe, Pokesdown. Google Pokesdown train station. Okay, th- 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 these things look like they're from, I would say, a developing country. Many developing countries have a better rail infrastructure than we do now. Uh, that's not an exaggeration. Um, so we-, we can't use finance. We can't guarantee loans on stuff like that, but we can do it to help our mates because, of course, they're making lots of money exporting various goods and services overseas. Maurice, you you said you weren't averse to the idea. I mean, this is one of those things where I think most of the public would never even have heard of UKEF. And yet we're on the hook for 50 billion pounds of exposure to projects all around the world. I mean, had you heard of
1: UKEF before this story? I haven't at all, to be honest. I'm sure 99% even of your very knowledgeable Viewers won't have heard of them. It's it it, again. It just put it puts uh, uh, it it shows up the lie of oh, there's no money. or we can't do this or we can't do that. You can do pretty much whatever, whatever we put our minds to. Whatever, whatever is going to be financially beneficial. uh, It seems that we can do it. So let's do stuff that we know is going to be socially beneficial. That's actually going to help the people that live in this country. It's really simple.
0: There is a money magic money tree. It's called the UKEF. I I had heard of it, but not until, I think, earlier this year. Uh, A relevant story in addition to this one is how the government is presently planning to close ticket offices in 974 stations across the country. Quite a big deal. The plan is to have rail staff basically function as employees in the Apple Store. They'll be walking around platforms with a lanyard and a machine. Uh, But despite this being backed by the Tories, the Chancellor, Jeremy Hunt, complained about railway ticket office closures in his own area the day before those new plans were unveiled. The Chancellor contacted Southwestern Railway, which runs services in his southwest Surrey constituency, earlier this month to raise concerns about the impact on local passengers. The Mirror reports this. A source close to Mr. Hunt said he was just doing his job as a local MP by, quote, conveying constituent concerns to rail companies. They added, quote, the Chancellor supports wider modernization of the rail network. The reforms will enhance the rail, uh, the role rather, of station workers and would not leave more stations unstaffed. So Hunt was merely conveying concerns that he didn't personally agree with. Is that what he said to his constituents? Sorry, you're wrong. The companies are completely right. They have my full support, but I'll I'll convey your concerns. I I suspect he didn't. I think he probably said, yes, it's all quite awful. I'll see what I can do. Maurice, do you have your suspicions about uh, Jeremy Hunt and what he would have told his constituents who will soon be losing their ticket offices in South West Surrey?
1: Oh, I'm sure he would have been um, completely honest with them. No, of course not. Of course not, Aaron. he's a politician and I'm not, I'm not even being partisan now. He's a politician. He was sat in front of this resident and he was gone, Oh dear, that is terrible. Oh, you know, you, you come home and the, and you you come home fairly late and you're, you're worried when you come out of the station, that's awful. I'm going to, I'm going to stand up for your rights and send a very stern letter. And he sends a letter He shows them what he's done and, and, and they're all happy. And, and then it, nothing happens. And he comes back and goes, well, I did fight for you. And they, they, they feel loved and, you know, they feel that, you know, he, he lost, but he gave it a, a right royal go. It's, it's um, it, yeah, it's performative politics. Uh, I'm, I'm not even sure if the constituent thinks that he's really fighting on their behalf. Next story.
0: Byline Times has now released the third instalment of its three-year investigation into GB News host Dan Wootten. And the accusations levelled against Wootten in this one are pretty serious. Before we get on to them, we should say some aspects of this story involve graphic sexual language and threats. Early this month, Woodson's former partner, Alex Truby, said this. While Dan was in New Zealand visiting his family, I stayed at his flat to cat-sit. And one day, while doing some laundry, I found a hold stuffed down the back of the washing machine. It was locked with a padlock, so naturally, I wanted to know what was inside. And I found an external hard drive. On it, I found a video of one of Dan's supposed friends, a son employee, having sex with his boyfriend. The video clearly was made in secret and filmed from afar by a hidden camera. In the same folder as the video, I found a transcript of an MSN conversation between the colleague's partner and someone called Martin Branning, whereby an arrangement was indeed made to make the sex tape in secret with his colleagues without his colleague's knowledge in exchange for £500. I knew instantly that Martin Branning was Dan. Byline Times has now tracked down the former partner of the Murdoch employee, who details how Wooten allegedly blackmailed him into making the video without his partner's consent. A central claim of the Byline investigation is that Dan Wooten used the pseudonym Martin Branning to catfish men into sending him intimate images. Wooten has denied any criminal behaviour on his part, but he also branded himself, quote, the target of a smear campaign by nefarious players. However, he hasn't denied using or being connected to the name Martin Branning. The man that Byline Times has spoken to says he was introduced to Wotton at a private members club in London by his partner at the time, the Murdoch employee. Shortly afterwards, he began to receive emails from Martin Branning on 26th of June 2008. Branning sent him this. I had your email and a couple of pics of you passed along to me because I heard you might be interested in making some extra cash through the sort of modelling and other work uh, I've got on offer. Don't know if the person mentioned it to you, but I'd be really keen to chat with you further All completely confidential, of course. Branning, there, is suggesting that there is some third party who's passed on the man's details. That's a theme that crops up more than once in the correspondence. And, according to the man, Wooten knew he was in financial trouble at the time. This was the man's reply. Um, well, I never say never, but I'm really quite curious who has passed you my, quote, details. More info, please. Looking forward to your response. And Branning replied with this. Cool. Well, look. It's someone who knows you through, we don't know, this has been uh, edited out, but I always promise never to pass on those details because this person has worked for me in the past. Basically, he said you were an open-minded guy who's always looking for ways to make more pounds, more money, which sounded perfect to me. I'd do a whole range of modeling and that sort of work, which I'd like to see if you might be up for. Drop me a line when you can, Martin. Kiss. Now, that work turned out to be making consensual adult films. Branning would dictate a physical type to the man who would then locate someone matching it on data apps like Grindr or Gaydar. Branning also gave the man instructions on how to convince them to have sex on camera, saying this in an email on July 29th, 2008. You make it a really horny idea with whoever you're seeing. All you need to say is, I'd love you to film me as you fuck me. It works with all guys, trust me. Anyway, just keep me informed with your progress. It's not clear from the article whether the men consented to the films being sent to a third party. The man explained to Barline Times how the filming worked. At that time, I needed money, the victim said. It was an attractive offer. The courier would come with a video camera he would supply. I would make footage with it and send it back with a courier arranged by Branning. There'd never be money until weeks later. I'd be thinking he had stitched me up. Ultimately, money would be delivered by courier. Sweaty Awards of 20s, basically. But things took a darker turn when Branning asked the man to make a video with his partner, the Murdoch employee. The man told Byline Times this. It started with, do you know this guy? I told him I was not going to do this, but the pressure was mounting. I said, it's not going to happen. He's not interested. It'll be difficult to obtain what you want. But then I was told to. Just take some discreet pictures if you can. When the man refused to make the video, he says the pressure from Branning grew more intense. The man tells Byline this. Branning said, if you don't get this footage, then there are consequences, and you don't want your employer to find out, or your friends and family to know what you've been doing. No one wants their mum and dad to see you effing someone, and that's what it was. Well, if you don't, your family and your friends and your colleagues and your employers are going to see what you've been doing. You know, that was the heaviest part of it. I did try to just ignore that and terms to f off, basically, but then it just got more intense. After more threats, offers of money, and a promise to make it the last demand the man agreed to make the secret recording. Asked by Byline Times whether he believes he was blackmailed by Branning, the man replied, quote, Yes. He went on to say this. It was a barrage of pressure to get this or otherwise your cover will be blown. In the end, it was like, effort. I will just do it. The guilt and the shame of actually doing what I've done to somebody that I was in a relationship with, that's the thing that to this day makes me feel sick because there's consequences to that. I still can't forgive myself for doing that to somebody else. That video is alleged to be the one that Wooten's ex-partner, Alex Truby, found behind the washing machine. In Barline's first expose, they alleged this. Mr. Truby confronted Wooten over the contents of the hodl. Mr. Truby said that Wooten made a tearful admission of guilt, acknowledging he was the creator and controller of the pseudonym Martin Branning. According to the man himself, who accuses him of blackmail, Branning wasn't finished with him, allegedly sending an edited compilation of the films he'd made to his partner. On 30th of May 2011, the man sent this email to Branning. A video of me was sent to my partner with footage of every person I'd been with and sent to you. You promised me that wouldn't happen. You really don't know the damage caused. Branning replied, resurrecting the mysterious third person with this... Fuck, really? Must have been the other guy because he was getting really annoyed you couldn't get any footage with. Who thinks he knows? What happened? Sorry. But according to the man, it didn't end there. He also told Barline Times this. And then it was harassment. It was horrendous. I left London to get away from it all. I changed my phone number, blocked all of these Martin Branning email addresses that would come in, but he still managed to get hold of me until 2018 when it stopped. So what has Dan Wooten said about these accusations? Byline Times reports putting these new allegations to his representative, but have so far received no response. On his show after the
4: first story broke, Woodson said this about the accusations. These past few days, I have been the target of a smear campaign by nefarious players with an axe to grind. Notably by an ex-partner who I was, and this is something I've never spoken about and is very difficult to talk about publicly, but who I was previously abused by and who has been on a campaign to destroy my life. In the past, he has written to me, confessing to being a, quote, psychopath. And I saw this firsthand when he threatened in writing to, quote, slit my throat, many years after we had broken up. I have been forced to report his behavior and threats to police. They are now investigating. He has created an untrue story about me and appears to have been working with an organisation who are intent on closing down this channel, whose reporters include a convicted phone hacker. The Guardian has also reported it tonight. What a surprise. Other unspeakable slurs have been made by a convicted extortionist I have never even met, who has a long history of blackmailing gay men, and was sent to jail for a number of years by a judge who said his behaviour was, quote, compulsive and provided a high risk to the public. I, like all fallible human beings, have made errors of judgment in the past, but the criminal allegations being made against me are simply untrue. I would like nothing more than to address those spurious claims. I could actually spend the next two hours doing so, but on the advice of my lawyers, I cannot comment further. But... I have been thinking much over the past few days about the current state of social media, where any allegation can be made in an attempt to get someone cancelled, but it is impossible to defend yourself against thousands of trolls. That said, I am coming on air tonight with a lot of humility too. I think being in the middle of this witch hunt has made me think a lot about the sort of journalist and broadcaster I aspire to be, one focused on the massive political threats facing this country, not on personal attacks. I mean, who doesn't have regrets? Should I be cancelled for them many years later? Or do you accept that I have learned and changed?
0: Woodson has also launched a fundraiser. On it, he writes this. A hard-left blog is on a deranged campaign of harassment designed to destroy me financially, mentally, and professionally. But with your help, they will not succeed. Byline Times has eschewed all journalistic, legal, and moral practices to publish a series of defamatory and untrue claims as part of a highly politicized witch hunt designed to cancel and deplatform me. So far, he has raised less than 37000 of his £150,000 goal. In response to the byline investigation, News UK, his former employer has launched investigation overseen by external counsel. This is really fascinating. That's a move that's apparently not been seen at the organization since the 2011 phone hacking scandal. Points to the gravity of this situation. It said, quote, we are looking into the allegations made in recent days. We are not able to make any further comments at this stage. The Sun's editor, Victoria Newton, has also released this statement in response to written questions from Parliament's Culture, Media and Sport Committee. We take these allegations seriously, but we're in no position to comment further. And indeed, we make no commitment to make any further comment, depending on the outcome of our investigation. Sounds like Cousin Greg speaking to a Senate committee in, what was it, season two of Succession? Uh, Maurice, you've worked in the media for a long time. Have you ever come across a story like this before
1: I, i'm sure there are lots of uh, um i'm trying to pick my words carefully there are lots of journalists who over the years have have done pretty horrendous things so so that i don't think is 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 rare um i mean but these these are, and obviously i have no idea whether i have no idea about the truth behind you know some of this Dan woods and stuff like I'm not over, I wasn't overly aware of I don't pay that much attention to him. But but for the severity of of, of what's being what's being alleged, um, you would and, and and especially when you when you look at maybe how the things I have seen of him, him being very, very critical of people like Meghan Markle and, and whatever, and being very moralistic and, and and what have you, um, you would think with with the strength of these accusations that that the, the the response would be a lot more. Um, I'm, I'm surprised that he's on air. I'm surprised that he's he's he not been suspended while he sorts it out or whatever. Um, doesn't doesn't uh, I, I got to say nothing nothing that that uh, um, powerful journalists do is going to be that surprising. I think if you let people feel that they can do or get away with anything and that they're cleverer than everyone else in the room maybe sometimes they act like that.
0: Yeah, I think it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because, look, we don't know if Martin Browning is Dan Wood, and that's a, key, that's a key distinction to make. But it's interesting how, in the abstract, you could, you could think about how journalists who employed certain strategies to entrap people professionally might seek to use them in their personal lives. And it's an interesting question. Was this, was this journalism? Was it somebody using those same techniques to, to gain personally, professionally, was it something else? Was it something a bit more deeper? Um, questions that, you know, frankly, we, we, we can't ask here on Environ Media for the time being. There's more we should talk about on this story, because since Byline began publishing their investigation, journalists at the outlet have faced threats. A blood-like liquid was found smeared across the windscreen of a Byline journalist. And there's more, as Yahoo News explained here. Peter Dukes, co-founder and executive director of the Byline Times, says the incident came after one of his reporters was targeted by a phishing email earlier this week, which may have given away their address. It was followed by an abusive email sent to the newsroom on Saturday night with the subject over Dan Woodson, reading, See you at the office and blood will flow. On Sunday afternoon, Dukes returned a missed call and was told, Are you Peter? You're going to regret this. Duke says that while receiving threats is, quote, dark and disturbing, his reporters are not deterred, adding, it doesn't stop us. We double our efforts not to be cowed or intimidated. Well done, Peter. Our solidarity here at Novara Media goes to you and everyone at Byline Times. Really outstanding work of journalism on this stuff so far, and this is absolutely unacceptable in response Maurice, quickly, are you worried about a rise in attacks on not only politicians, but journalists too? I mean, this this happened to myself today. Uh, it it does feel that, slowly but surely, this is becoming an incredibly common part of politics in this country.
1: It's really worrying. There was the attack on Owen um, a, a while back, wasn't there as well, Owen I mean, Jones a while back. Um, theres I, I don't see it getting any better. I don't see anything that's that's gonna change the direction of travel and the direction of travel is 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 a really worrying one when you've got um especially the j- journalists on the left are normally working for quite small uh um don't mind me saying uh poorly resourced organizations um and so um you know you don't it's it's you' you're not very protected often you don't feel very protected and so This is really concerning. I'm I'm sort of old enough not to be out there on the streets, I guess, but I'd be really worried if I were young and getting into sort of political journalism at the moment.
0: Our final story. Nigel Farage recently had his Coots Bank account closed, and the release of an internal memo from the bank, which Farage managed to get hold of after a subject access request, appeared to show that his political views were part of the reason he was, quote, debanked. But that was only after the BBC published this story. Nigel Farage, bank account shut for, falling below wealth limit, source tells, BBC. Co-written by the BBC's business editor, Simon Jack, the story went on to say this. Nigel Farage fell below the financial threshold required to hold an account at Coutts, the prestigious private bank for the wealthy, the BBC has been told. It is understood he was subsequently offered a standard account at NatWest, which owns Coots. Mr. Farage has said he believes his account is being shut for political reasons and he's since been turned down by nine other lenders. But a source familiar with Coots' move said it was a commercial decision. Last week, Dame Alison Rose, the CEO of NatWest Group, which owns Coots, Coots is a subsidiary of NatWest, wrote to Farage with this apology. I am writing to apologise for the deeply inappropriate comments about yourself made in the now published papers prepared for the Wealth Committee. I believe very strongly that freedom of expression and access to banking are fundamental to our society, and it is absolutely not our policy to exit a customer on the basis of legally held political and personal views. Well, the documents that Farage got hold of would seem to indicate otherwise. That was the bank's apology. On Monday, it was the BBC's turn. This was Farage on GB News. I
5: felt that the BBC, frankly, were being a little bit slow in correcting the story and changing the headline. And I thought the hurt the story had caused me was such that actually, I really, really, really wanted an apology. Well, BBC apologies are very, very rare. They only happen once every few years. But today I got that apology and it began with Simon Jack, the BBC's business editor. And he says, the information on which we based our reporting on Nigel Farage and his bank accounts came from a trusted and senior source. Hmm, interesting. However, the information turned out to be incomplete and inaccurate. Therefore, I would like to apologise to Mr Farage. On top of that, I got a letter this afternoon, which I was pleased to get, and it came from Deborah Turness, the CEO of BBC News and Current Affairs. And I'm going to put the letter up on your screen now. And let's go through what is significant. Made very, very clear that it repeated that the information turned out to be inaccurate. And at the bottom of that paragraph, she says, I would therefore like to apologise to you on behalf of BBC News. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Simon Jack. Thank you, Deborah Ternes. I know some will say it took too long, but thank you. A fulsome apology from the BBC is
0: not something that happens very
5: often. I'm delighted to get it.
0: It looks like Coots and the BBC aren't out of the woods yet, though. That's after The Telegraph reported this. Pressure mounts on NatWest chairman over Farage Bank scandal. The article goes on to say this. Dame Alison's career is hanging in the balance after the BBC apologised on Monday for an inaccurate story that claimed Coots, which is owned by NatWest, shut down Mr Farage's bank accounts because he did not meet its financial requirements. The broadcaster said the story by Simon Jack, its business editor, had come from a, quote, trusted and senior source. Mr. Jack sat next to Dame Allison at a charity dinner in London the night before the article was published. Days earlier, Mr. Farage had disclosed that his accounts with Coots had been closed, quote, without explanation. Sir Howard Davies, Nat West chairman, is now facing calls to launch a board-level inquiry into the leak. I have to say, I find this a pretty remarkable story, and it works on multiple levels. Firstly, Farage is debanked. You might not care about that. I think I think it's bad because this will ha- this will happen. It will come for the left eventually. This stuff, uh, but park that. Then something is briefed to the BBC, which it appears is untrue, and the BBC publish it. That to me. Is far more concerning, particularly as somebody on the left, because there's a few things. Firstly, big institutions like Coots are are perfectly happy to lie. Secondly, the BBC aren't, you know, aren't that fastidious in checking whether or not they're being honest. Maurice, I have to say, and maybe this is why I'm actually quite sympathetic to Farage on this, I have to say this whole account, this whole ordeal, it reminds me of Corbyn. Because what you have is a big institution uh, misrepresenting the truth. They say something which is inaccurate to journalists, and they repeat what they're told with any kind of scepticism whatsoever. Uh, and so I think for some people watching or listening here at Navarro, I think, why is Aaron defending, you know, Farage? I saw the same time after time after time with Jeremy Corbyn after 2015, and I'm, I'm done with it, frankly. I think if you lie, if this is Alison Rose, by the way, I think she has to face serious consequences. What do you think, Maurice? Who's worse here? Alison Rose, Simon Jack. We don't know yet, by the way, if Alison Rose is the one who told Simon Jack, but that's what Farage is insinuating. And what do you think should happen to both of the individuals involved?
1: You're right. We can't, we can't have a situation where your political views, you know, restrict you from something like banking. We, we just simply can't, can't have that. Um, if it's going to happen to someone like Farage, it's definitely going to happen to to left wing organisations. So you know we need to be very aware of that. But but um, but seeing him sort of bleat on us, it's like it's like having Man United versus Man City. It's like you've got you got Nigel Farage against against Coots Bank. I can't I can't be I can't be really cheering for either of them. But but yes, he's. <sighs> He's been badly he's been he's been treated badly and it's um it's exactly what happened and happened to the left it's exactly the sort of smears that happen not just against corbyn but against you know um uh the families of of someone who's killed by the police or the, it's it, there's a there's there's a really um familiar sort of flow to this where powerful institutions are able to to get their messages not just out there, but get them accepted as as fact, and you know maybe with an apology a tiny bit later. So it does matter. But like I say, I, I hate having to care about Nigel Farage.
0: That's such a good point about the police, Maurice. It's, that, it's exactly the same. Powerful institution says something. BBC uncritically promotes their message. Oh, that's a really really good point. Quickly, uh, this is broken in the last half an hour. Nat West has insisted it has quote full confidence in Alison Rose despite the chief executive admitting she made a, quote, serious error of judgment. Uh, is she admitting that she said these things to Simon Jack? I mean, that's, that's interesting. The banking group's chairman, Howard Davies, said the board support for Rose came after, quote, careful reflection, but warned she could see her pay docked as a result of the controversy. I find that extraordinary. She should resign, my view. Simon Jack potentially should be disciplined, but ultimately his failure was to believe somebody um, who wasn't telling the truth. Uh, To add here, Davies himself added, this is Howard Davies, the group's chairman, quote, The board has noted Alison Rose's statement on the circumstances of a conversation with BBC journalist Simon Jack and her further apology to Mr Farage. That's obviously a variable, very interesting story. If only Jeremy Corbyn could defend himself and do um, rebuttal like Nigel Farage, we'd probably have a Labour government. Um, this evening, that is all for now, however. Maurice, thanks for joining me tonight.
1: Thanks very much, Aaron. It's been great.
0: And thanks for everyone who's watched this evening. Thanks for all of your super chats, by the way, and all of your solidarity. Come back for tomorrow's show. We'll be live from 6pm. For now, you've been watching Navarro Media. Good night.
2: This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramediacom support.